A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hey, welcome back to part two of my interview with Stephen Post. And lo and behold, you know, this was after finishing up at the University of Chicago. So I was there for two years. And then I got an opportunity to go to, to teach philosophy, believe it or not, at Fordham University in the Terrytown campus. And they wanted me to teach like, you know, phenomenology of love and positive emotions, kindness, forgiveness, gratitude. And I was excited by that. So we left Ann Arbor. We were living in an apartment in Ann Arbor. We drove east on Route 80, you know, got to got to Terrytown, and I had to I, I had about twelve thousand dollars to to my name because you know, just didn't have a lot of cash at that time. I was a just impoverished graduate student for five years in Hyde Park, so I had to spend literally everything I had to land an apartment in Terrytown because it's really Greater New York and it's really expensive. And I was pretty much down to nothing. I still had a credit card. So we were going to stay at the Terrytown Hilton that night, and that was okay. But right now, I just wanted to kind of cut back on my credit card expenditures because I that was going through the roof. And so my wife, Mitsuko, and I and our daughter, Emma, who was then two years old, were parked in front of the Howard Johnson's Diner, which is right across from the, the old Tappan Zee Bridge, now the Mario Cuomo Bridge. And it's now, by the way, it's a, it's a Honda dealership. It's, they, they tore it down. But, but we were there, and Mitsuko said to me, we need to pray for $100. And I said, okay, let's, let's try. And so she did this really deep prayer that somehow or another, we would get $100 and be able to get through the day, get to the diner, and just you know, do a few things. And we had a secondhand blue Datsun Sentra, okay? So we're, we're, there we are in the parking lot. And I didn't give a damn about this car because it was all, all nicked up and everything. And so she, she, my, my wife said that she felt this little, little tap on the car. And she wondered if someone hit us. And I said, no, Mitsuko, no, no. So we, I, we interrupted the prayer. And she said, no, you've got to get out and see. So I got out of the car. And, you know, it's sort of noonish and it's pretty bright out. And it's because it's late summer and, and, and you know, it's, it's sort of mid, mid-August, basically. And I look out, and there's this big guy who was maybe 6'4", six, 6'5", six, very rotund, African-American, looked like he was kind of a Pentecostal-type person wearing a white suit and a white hat. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he said, oh, let's not do this through insurance. Let's just settle it. And he opened up his wallet, and he pulled out a $100 bill. And he said, well, this, you know, and I said, I said, sir, you are an answer to a prayer. Wow. <laughs> and, and I had my 100 bucks, and then we went into the – I thanked him very much – and then we went into the Howard Johnson's and we got all kinds of French fries and then milkshakes for Emma and all that kind of bad stuff. And we had a nice afternoon. And the next day I actually got paid. I got my first paycheck 
And a couple of days later, we moved into our apartment on Main Street in Terrytown. The, the power of prayer right there. Yeah. yeah. And, and as we know, not all prayers are answered so immediately or so directly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was what was so shocking about that because, I mean, I, I talked about, about it with my wife and we always smile about it. But it just shows you this. I think sometimes this infinite mind of unlimited love is very playful and it yeah. kind of sets us up for these sorts of events kind of to be, you know, to be mirthful. Yeah, that's fun. That's really fun. Well, thank you for sharing that. So, okay, let's see. I had just a few other ideas that you raised in the book, but I'm feeling like we had a transition here soon. I'm, I'm really curious what you talk about. And, and I, I realize we probably don't have time in this interview for all this, but maybe I'll just rattle off a few things. And if any of it feels like it's worth talking about or something you want to talk about, you can tell me. I love what you say about names of God, that it's fine to give names to people or dogs, <laughs> but not so good to give names to God. Yeah. And I love your term. I'd never heard this before. Carefrontation. Yeah. Like, what is it? How do we do it? Why would we want to? And then I also want to ask, I know we didn't even, we didn't talk about, man, the interaction with Sir John Templeton or what that led to. So there's so much, like there's so much, but <laughs> in the interest of, of time, is there any of that that you feel you want to yeah. touch on? Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, like, you know, re, re, you've got all these religions and to me, it's all like a GPS. You know, sometimes you 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 load your GPS for, you know, you want to get to San Francisco and you're going to you're going to get somehow off the course and you're going to take different turns and different twists. But if you just stick with it, eventually you'll get to San Francisco, sometimes with some pretty crazy detours. And that's to, to me, the whole thing about religions is that they're all trying to get us to the, to the same place, which is this realization of an infinite mind of unlimited love. And it doesn't really matter too much how we get there because what's really important is that we do get there. And so, I, you know, I, I'm not too much into names of God, and, and, and that sort of touches on that question. The thing about, what was the next one? The, uh, so, the names of God, carefrontation. Oh, yeah. So, so, when I was at Case Western in the med school, one of our graduates was a guy named M. Scott Peck, who wrote written a book called The Road Less Traveled, and he was living in Connecticut at the time. And because I was on the faculty there and interested in psychiatry, we got to know each other. We met each other at a reunion there when I was doing a talk. And we actually, in correspondence, I actually have all that correspondence with him right up here in my desk. We wanted a word together that was better than confrontation. And so we came up with carefrontation. And that's a chapter in the book I did, Why Good Things Happen to Good People. Because, you know, confrontation is like, you know, loggerheads. But carefrontation means with deep empathy and kindness and loyalty, you're going to help someone kind of be cons- more, live more consistently with their values. And that's for Aristotle, that was the highest form of friendship. That's the kind of friend you want. Someone who's going to make sure you don't veer off course and get in incredible trouble, you know? Yeah. So, I, I, I love that term, by the way, and in, in coaching and I train coaches and, and the way I phrase what I'm hearing in carefrontation is to be a stand for one's greatness. Yeah, just, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the highest form of friendship, you want the people around you who will be sure that you do stand for your greatness and that you have yeah. that kind of integrity. Yeah. And that's I, why you want them on your board of trustees. You want them, you know, and, and so Aristotle said that your best friends aren't the people you hang out and party with or whatever, you know, but they're really the people that keep you on the right pathway and are, are concerned 
in a gentle way sometimes that you yeah. you stick with your pathway. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And and another guest and friend of mine, Dr. Tasha Yurek, she has a term that's along these lines of a loving critic. Where if you, you know, for example, if you share something you've written with someone who loves you, all you'll get is the, yeah, 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 it's wonderful. If you share it with somebody who's, you know, only critical of you, they'll point out all the flaws, but not necessarily in a way that will really help you improve the work. But yeah. finding somebody, I, I love that. I didn't know that about Aristotle saying that that's the highest type form of friendship. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, th the thing about, it, I mean, so in why good things happen to good people, I mean, the definition of love is when the happiness and security of another is as real or meaningful to you as your own, but it can take so many expressions. So sometimes people need care frontation, you know, yeah. sometimes they need compassion. Sometimes they need forgiveness. So we always have to be thinking like wheels of love, you know, in the book, you know, God and love, you know, how, how do the people we encounter need us to manifest love? And it can take very different forms, but care frontation is an important form. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I also love, the way you you talk about this when you say you say in the end one must skillfully engage in carefrontation or live a life of avoidance that we can just kind of live around these things you know but then we're far below our potential the potential of the ones we love you know the greatness in them like all this yeah that whole avoidance thing you know it, it only gets you so far yeah for sure as far as sir john goes so i, I you know route 80 is about meeting amazing people and responding to them. And I, I didn't make my life, you know, I've had some successes, but I've responded to people. And, and I met Sir John in, in, you know, 1989 or so. And I was able to work alongside of him as he was developing all these institutes on gratitude and forgiveness all over the world. And I was on his board for six years, the Templeton Foundation. But what was so interesting, I was I was sitting in my office at Case Western, and it was, I guess, June of 2001, and I got a fax from Sir John, who lived in Lyford in Nassau. He didn't email. He was kind of too old for emailing, but he thought the fax was a great invention. So I got, I got a lot of faxes from him, and one morning I got a fax that said, Stephen, we need to start an institute that takes the highest methodologies of science and applies them not just to human love but to the love that made humans. In other words, not just to our human emotions of love, but to this sense of a kind of overarching presence of love in the universe. And I faxed back, Sir John, what should we call it? And he said, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Those were his words. And he'd written a little book by that title. And I faxed back, Sir John, because I was having a little trepidation since I was in a materialistic environment. <laughs> Maybe we should call it the Institute for creative altruism and he shot back no i think unlimited love up to 8.9 million dollars and i think i did what you would have done brian i said so john i love that language it jumps right off the page you know? <laughs> and we were able to study you know fund all kinds of things with ions and all you know just all these wonderful organizations and not just look at human empathy and compassion although we did a lot of that but he also wanted to study these feelings of being invaded almost by a higher power of love and people do have these experiences and they find themselves able to love people in powerful ways they may not even know them they may not be friends but they just feel that that person's life in and of itself is of inestimable value yeah you know that's one thing that selfishly i want a bigger experience of for myself 
And I wish that everyone <laughs> had that experience. And, you know, I think about something I heard President Jim Kim, president of the World Bank, say where, you know, his organization employs 3,000 PhDs, you know, a lot of researchers and, and scholars and, and things like this. And he said that it attracts a lot of people. The way he phrases it, he says, they love humanity, but they hate people. Yeah. I was like, that's really interesting. And I think if they were instead motivated by this sense of connection to unlimited love, yeah. you know, how, how different that would be. So where I'm going with all this is how can we cultivate that for ourselves? Yeah. Love of humanity is an abstraction in a sense, you know, lo- you know, the love humanity, but hate people. I mean, that's, I mean, Charles Dickens talked a lot about that. Camus talked a lot about that. I mean, basically this person right in front of me with all of his or her flaws and imperfections. You know, that's why I love the spirituality of imperfection, the sort of the AA thing, you know, that we just have to accept people, not just tolerate them, but accept them and love them as they are first but I, I mean, so I have a story, you know, I'm, so I'm sitting here right now talking to you from my medical school office. And several years ago, there was a, a wonderful uh, Korean American medical student, second year student who had grown up really poor in, in uh, Flushing, Queens. And she was struggling being a student because everyone else was a little better off than she was. And she just didn't feel, and she was also, she grew up in a very much a sort of a storefront Korean evangelical church, you know? So it was a cultural thing. And she came by and she was really, really struggling. I could see it, but I had this really busy schedule all afternoon. And like, you know, I had to see one person after another. And, and I said, look, drop me an email and we'll talk next week. So then I'm sitting here right in this chair and I, I felt this incredible warmth, energy. I can't even explain it because it's not rational, but I felt it. And I looked over my right shoulder because that's where it seemed to be coming from. And of course, there was nothing there. But but I just, it was so astonishing and so uplifting that I immediately realized I have to take care of this student right now and I have to cancel everything. So I just, you know, said, wait here. I canceled all these appointments for the afternoon and I spent the afternoon with, with her, and she eventually did take a year off, but I would go into Flushing to this Korean tea house, you know, ginseng tea and pulgogi and stuff. And, and she wrote, uh, she kept a journal. She did a special research project under me on medical compassion, and she got back into medical school, and she's doing really great now. But, I, but I've always looked after her because I, I felt that somehow, I mean, when she came in the door, she was just, you know, one out of, you know, there's 450 medical students floating around here, you know, but some, and, and it was easy for me to kind of overlook her, but because I felt this love, which was not from me, it was really like being invaded and it was sort of irresistible too. I didn't want to resist it, but I felt invaded by it and I always remembered it and it was a profound experience. And I guess that's why I'm talking about it right now, because it's like it just happened a minute ago. Hmm. So that's what I mean by higher love, not the, not human love, but the love that made humans that can work through us, you know, and, and bring us to, to these kinds of insights about the, the incredible love and value that God has for everyone without exception. That's really beautiful. And what I'm hearing in that is, you know, it, it sounds to me like in this case, you were able to express love through awareness, 
you know, you were aware of this feeling of the sensation. You, you were not only aware of it, but then you responded because of it and you took action and, and things like this. I know there's, there's not one single answer. It's not like a silver bullet or, you know, the skeleton key probably that unlocks this. But for those of us who maybe, and I'll put myself in this category, sometimes struggle as a parent, <laughs> you know, to be patient, to be kind, to be loving. I had this experience this week when just yesterday that I had a speaking opportunity. And afterward, I had in the haste of an uh, unfamiliar venue and the end and greeting people and things, I misplaced my bag. And when I called my assistant to say, do you know where it is? And she started to tell me she didn't, but she had these other things of mine. And I said, that's what I needed to know <laughs> is you don't have it, you know, and I was very curt. And afterward, I reflected on, well, I don't think that was very loving. <laughs> so having made the decision already to be a kind and loving and compassionate person, but not always expressing it in the moment, what do you say, you know, to me or to others who in whatever venue, leading people, parenting in their family relations, you know, how can we as a practice cultivate and express more love more often, more easily? Yeah. Well, again, first of all, that's a great, that's a great anecdote. Those who make no mistakes make nothing. Human nature is a mixed bag. You know, human love can reverse itself. It can be myopic. It can be unwise. It can flicker on and off. It's uh, very conditional. <laughs> it tends to be conditional. It really does. And, you know, we love our kids until they start talking back. Yeah, until <laughs> they know. have their own ideas and ideas. Yeah, they have their right? own ideas. Yeah. I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but you know, the, the, the thing is that, you know, we do the best we can. So what I do, I have to have a spiritual practice because I'm just like anybody else. If I don't, I, I can easily fall full-chested on the horn on the way to work because some guy in front of me had the audacity to slow down at a yellow light. I mean, I'm perfectly capable of doing that, you know, because I'm in the world, in the in this physical world, and there are all kinds of pressures, and I'm locked into chronological time, and I've got to get from point A to point B. And, you know, the Japanese symbol for busy is a heart with a slash through it, meaning no heart. And 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 so, you know, we're just so much caught up in in the pressures of this world in an age of incredible anxiety. It's amazing that we don't implode more than we do, although a lot of people do implode. And so I have to get up every, I get up every morning about five o'clock and I, I do that because the Jewish rabbis, the, the Kabbalistic people said that God is beyond time and space. And so when you get up in the morning early, you, you kind of feel like you're beyond time. You know, you're just coming out of sleep and you're not locked into, okay, I got to be here at 8, 8.39. And then you're also, you have a feeling of of placelessness because you could be in Cleveland, you could be in Utah, you could be, you know. You in the hinterlands of the universe. <laughs> you could be anywhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's this sense of proximity to the divine. And if you meditate and pray early on, before the world starts getting disruptive and full of chaos and nastiness. And and I do a kind of dress rehearsal because I sort of know who the key people I'm going to meet over the course of the day are. I, I write my schedule still down in a book, you know. <laughs> old school. And, yeah, old school. And I just kind of go through it. And I think about the different forms of love that the people I'm, I'm going to encounter are going to need over the course of the day, you know. and That's a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, that's what I do. So, some, so, so I know like one of my colleagues is having a hard time with the grant. So I'm going to spend 15 minutes with them talking about creativity and maybe a solution. Or I know that somebody's, you know, their spouse has left them and they need someone to sit and just listen and also express loyalty. Or, you know, it could be, it could be careful. It could be any of these things, but I try to project that. And, and I come into my own inner light, my own inner peace. I visualize a little bit, you know, I, I set the day up. And that way, when all these crazy things happen, and I have crazy pressures too, because this is a big academic medical center and it's almost completely unwieldy, you know, I, I manage to stay centered because I do something early in the morning. And some, you know, some people say, well, okay, what, well, how about, you know, at noon or two in the afternoon? But, you know, the Kabbalistic folks said, well, do it early because that's, that's deeper somehow. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And and a few a few months ago, I interviewed Hal Elrod, who wrote The Miracle Morning. Mm. And he talks about how, you know, we might, many of us might not think of ourselves as morning people, but we ultimately can change that with a decision. And so I've endeavored to live that since I was inspired by Hal. And just what you're saying, I love, I love the way you described it about cultivating this sense of spacelessness and timelessness. Mm-hmm. And now I wake up usually a couple hours before my first scheduled thing. Mm -hmm. And I love when it's quiet and it's still dark, you know, and it's just, it is, it's like that time doesn't matter. It's really beautiful. It's the most precious time of the day. And, 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 and so it's still possible, you know, that you'll, you'll get edgy and lose it and, you know, scream at somebody. I mean, you know, there's a wonderful book called what is it called? Scream-free parenting. And it points oh. out that even though 100% of parents don't want to scream at their kids, 98% of them do yeah, <laughs> at some yeah. point. At least sometimes. At some yeah. Too, you know? yeah, for sure. But Get So the, we do that, you know? Yeah. Now, thank you for sharing that. And I know, you know, it's a, it's a journey for sure. And by the way, I love what you say. I just want to say this before we transition. I love what you say. It's uh, simple to be happy, but yeah. hard to be simple. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> That's and I think maybe loving is the same way. It's simple yeah. to love, but sometimes hard to hard yeah. to be simple. Yeah. So okay, well, then with that, let's transition to the enlightening lightning round. I'll ask these questions and then do my best to step out of the way. I might okay. follow up a little bit on an answer here or there. So pretty quick responses. Well, you're welcome to take whatever okay. you want, but for me, I will just ask it, and we'll okay. keep moving, and then if time allows. We'll turn our conversation to a bit of discussion about creativity and writing. Okay, good. And then be done. Good, okay. Okay, awesome. So the enlightening lightning round, your first question, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Life is like a journey where you don't make your own way and you have to be open to surprises, but keep your faith in the journey because there's always something out in front of you that you can't see that's waiting for you to arrive. And that's synchronicity. I love it. Okay. Thank you. Number two, what is something at which you wish you were better? I wish I was better. This is a tough one. I wish I was better at sometimes celebrating 
people's lives. I mean, that's one area. It's in the book, you know, celebration, you know, grateful celebration is an important expression of love. But sometimes, you know, I've, I'm so caught up in work or, or sometimes so caught up in writing or speaking in various places. And, you know, as I look back on my life, you know, my kids are now in their 20s and they're growing up. And there, I must say that I, I you know, I, I look back. I wish that at certain points, I had been there a little more reliably just to celebrate some things in their lives because I was there pretty well, but not maybe as well as I could have been. And the thing is that now that I'm older, I can never get that back, you know. And so I think we have to be really careful as parents that we don't get the wrong idea of success in mind. That you know, it's somehow all about work and prestige and a better institution and better pay and whatever. But we really need to integrate well uh, with our loved ones who really depend on us and we need to celebrate their lives. And, and, and it's easy to forget that we're pulled away from it, but it's never worth forgetting. That's great. And by the way, I suspect you're being hard on yourself. I suspect you're actually pretty good at this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't <laughs> Better know. than you know, but just a suspicion. We've known each other for an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? It would say, those who make no mistakes make nothing. That would be it because, you know, like, you know, being in a medical center, you know, people make mistakes all the time on patients, you know, for example. And sometimes the results are pretty significant. And the real issue is how do they process that? It's not so much, you know, how do you apologize to a patient or, you know, how do you handle this and, you know, yada, 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 where does legal risk management come in? But it's just that, People feel so badly about it, and and sometimes they even leave medicine or nursing. There was a nurse in New York City four or five years ago who made a mistake in a neonatal intensive care unit that resulted in the death of an infant that was otherwise avoidable. And she had no place to go with it, no place to process it. And so a couple of months later, she killed herself. All right. So, you know, I, I just think that people need to understand, you know, those who make no mistakes make nothing. And we all, we all make mistakes and we always will make mistakes and we don't need to beat ourselves up over it. Question number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Oh, wow. That's really tough. There's a book by Mathieu Ricard on altruism that I really like. And I have our graduate students read it because he's a, He's a Buddhist monk and very close to his holiness. And he's written this incredible book that's like a magnum opus. Really, it's about kindness and spirituality. He calls it altruism because that's easier to get away with, you know. But it is a beautiful book. And he's a great exemplar. And I also give, a, give away a book by who, a guy who was a very close friend of mine, Jean Vanier, who founded L'Arche, these wonderful homes for people with cognitive disabilities. He wrote a book called Becoming Human. So those are books that I recommend to people. So the one by Matthew Ricard, Happiness, A Guide to Developing Life's Most Important <laughs> well, Skill. Well, he wrote is that a book, book on happiness. Oh, it is altruism. The power yeah, of compassion it, it, to yeah. change yourself in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's okay. all about how, you know, you really get the happiness 
in a meaningful way by being generative and kind and caring. And he's a pretty exemplary individual. I saw him. He came to the World Science Festival in New York a couple of years ago. We always talk. When he was writing this book, I was floating him PDFs because he lives in Nepal in a monastery. Wow. And so, you know, I was floating him all these PDFs and he, and he actually acknowledges that in the book. You know? That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really cool. And then, will you tell me, I apologize. I was looking at that book on, on Amazon and I missed, I missed that second one that you mentioned. Oh, Jean Vanier, V-A-N-I-E-R. V-A-N. He won the Templeton Prize about five years ago. J-E-A-N, Jean Vanier, Becoming, Becoming Human. Wow. Beautiful, That's... beautiful book. And I, 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 know, I knew him for quite a long time and, and actually founded several L'Arche centers in the United States, including L'Arche, Long Island, but also a couple in Cleveland. And there are these beautiful homes where the whole basis of interaction with these folks with cognitive developmental disabilities is love and, and spirituality. And they do amazing things. And he was a great, great human being. He died a year ago, very sadly, up in north of Paris. Yeah, those books, I'd never heard of either of those. I keep thinking, like, like a big part of my life's work is about books and writing, and I haven't got to the end of the list yet. I still hear about books I haven't heard of. There is so, the land. Yeah, thank you for that. Those, those look amazing. Okay, fantastic. Staying on track. Okay, question number five. So you travel a ton. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Oh, okay. I have a book. So when I get up early in the morning, I'm, I have new thought tendencies. I mean, I kind of believe in clearly writing out your, your most meaningful visions and dreams and, and hopes and, and aspirations in, in oneness with the divine mind, you know, in these kinds of quiet morning moments. So I have a, I have a little book. And I bring it on the airplanes with me and I don't read newspapers or lots of other things. I just sort of dwell on the book and I got, there's a lot of names of people I pray for and I know. And so I, 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 I sometimes uh, just try to envision them and project love. And I use that. I use my travel time to do that. And I'm pretty, pretty consistent about it. That's beautiful. Is it like a Moleskine notebook or... Well, I, I, I mean, I, I have different, I replace it quite frequently because, you know, I, I get more refined and I, I try to be more and more precise, but sometimes I just use those, those sort of mole ones and oh, yeah. um, there, there are different, different makes. I, you know, I picked one up at CVS the other day and I'm redoing it, but actually when I rewrite it, it's usually about 12 pages long, you know, hmm. but when I write it and rewrite it, I internalize it better. Yeah. And I even try to do sort of non-local viewing. You know, I try to think about all these people. There are probably a hundred names in there. And I, actually, I, when I'm traveling, I can take the time and I can just really think about their situation and connect with them, at least you know, I believe at a spiritual level. Yeah, that, that's really beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. I will say I've heard some common answers to that question, but no one has yet given that one. And I suspect no one else will. (laughs) (laughs) So I really, really appreciate that. Okay. Number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? To age well. I cut carbos, cut sugar pretty well, and I've lost a few pounds. You know, I have to be careful about weight. 
Well, that's especially true. if you're working in the Center for Preventative Medicine. Yeah, I do. You're absolutely true because you have to set some kind of a decent example. But, you know, now that I've gotten somewhat older, you know, I really have so much more on Route 80. You know, I mean, the book ends when we actually, you know, the the, the, the website to the Institute got hacked by ISIS. And, and as a result of that, we were able to fill the entire UN headquarters with young people from all over the globe who won essay contests on how they have pushed back against peer pressure to hate anybody who didn't just believe what they believed. And so it kind of ends there. But that was, you know, that was 2016, August of 2016. And there's a whole lot more of Route 80 to come. And so, uh, you know, and I love Route 80. I mean, I love the, the Delaware water gap. You know, I love to go out there. It's like an hour and a half from the George Washington Bridge and you're just breaking over the Delaware River and you see that's where the Appalachian Trail cuts through. So I got too much to do on Route 80 to get really unhealthy. Yeah, for sure. You got a lot of good years ahead of you. Yeah. That's great. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish everyone knew that it's no good to demonize people you disagree with. It's no good. And that's happening too much now. You know, people, good, sincere people have different political points of view. And, you know, you, 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 you have to be able to still sit and have a cup of tea together and be caring and be attentive. And I, I don't think there's a, much of an answer right now for the fragmentation of our society coming out of politics or any place other than a kind of spiritual renaissance. And, and I think that's happening. I think that just having this conversation is very powerful, but these things are happening again and again. And there are more and more people who are just saying, you know, enough is enough and let's just reach inside. You know, I, by the way, I was okay with Marianne Williamson running for the Democratic Party, you know? Because, yeah. I mean, miracle. I mean, everybody, a lot of people kind of laughed at her, you know, what's this love business? But, you know, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's okay to have people like that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's definitely a change in conversation. Yeah. And, and I love, too, one thing that I learned from, from this book where you give later in the book the etymology of the word respect. Yeah, respectara. Yeah, to, to look again, right? Yeah, to relook. From, just like you wear glasses, spectacles, you know, so to look more deeply, to look again. To, and, and that's what we need to do because people, they have, everyone has a different history, a different background, and they have reasons for thinking and feeling and having the opinions they do. And, and so sometimes it's nice to just kind of be respectful. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know? For sure. Yeah. Okay. Question number eight. Question number eight is, what's the most important or useful advice you've ever learned and successfully applied about making relationships work and maybe intimate or, you know, marriage, intimate relationships or marriage? Yeah. Well, you know, I've been married for 37 years. That's a while. I know this will shock you, but I think you, you know, you have to realize that you, you never marry the right person. <laughs> I know this is a bad thing to say. Well, this is, this is that theme of spirituality of imperfection. Yeah, of imperfection. You know, I mean, if I was a perfectionist, my wife would have left me 10 times years ago, and I probably would have walked out the door. You know, 
my grandfather, by the way, had been married to Emily Post, wrote the etiquette books. Oh, and yes. He, and he stepped out on her because there was this beautiful Broadway actress, actress and, and they had an affair and she turned out to be my grandmother. You know? wow. but, but I, you know, I do believe in loyalty. I mean, to me, sticking with people is an expression of love because there's so much insecurity. And when you really look at the literature, you know, that when, when people can't find security in relationships where they're going from one person to another, to another, to another, it really is devastating for them psychologically. And then sometimes, you know, you, you think someone's not quite perfect and then you're looking elsewhere and lo and behold, you'll learn pretty quickly that that next person isn't perfect either. Yeah. The grass is not greener. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and by the way, sorry to jump, but to jump in here, and one thing you said in the book that you know I I jotted down maybe twenty sentences that really hit me, and one of them to the point you're making now, loyalty. This was I had to read this a couple times. Loyalty to the people God brings your way is all you really have to find your destiny. Yeah, it's true. That's true. That's true. It's like wow, that's yeah. pretty. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, so I'm loyal, you know, and I'm loyal in my book. In my, in my book, I, you know, I, I have pictures of my kids, and you know, I talk, I, I, and I have some keywords, you know, kindness, celebration, affirmation, but I also have loyalty, and next to it, I have a dollar sign, <laughs> because you know, I have a daughter in L.A. I, you know, I, I have a son who works in the World Trade Center, but you know, sometimes they, they might, you know, I mean, my, my daughter was working with a company, and suddenly, you know, like some corporate. This is why people are mad at corporate America, you know, a whole wing will just get cut out and they'll be told, clear out your desk by two o'clock and don't come back. I mean, that's corporate yeah. America. That's yeah. so different than Japan where they have loyalty to their workers. I think a lot of reasons why so many people have gotten kind of mad at capitalism is because of that practice. I think we need more loyalty in the corporate space, in yeah. our marriages, between parents and children. We just need more loyalty, you know? And yeah. And it's so important because people, you know, they have to have attachments that they can count on, you know? Yeah, for sure. Man, I was hoping you just have like this one, one simple trick. <laughs> no, but that's, I think that's a deep insight. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I'm glad to know that even after 37 years of marriage, like, okay. We do okay. We yeah. do okay. Yeah, that's great. You know? That's good. Okay. Next question coming down the stretch on the enlightening lightning round. Question number eight, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're sure to never do or always do with it? Be careful of foolish investments. I made a foolish investment once upon a time. I didn't lose my shirt. I lost 40,000 bucks. Um, what you invest in? Well, a friend of mine was starting a company and it looked really good and he could sell that thing like P.T. Barnum. And I just thought, hey, here's an opportunity of a lifetime. And it turned out the whole thing was uh, bogus. Wow. So I learned that I have to be very careful as an investor and think everything through and not try to do wild things, but just be sort of consistent over time. So I'm, I'm a conservative investor. I also live simply. I, you know, I believe in simplicity. So I don't spend a lot of money. And you have to live simple and have some thrift because if you don't, then you can't give. You, you don't have anything to help, to give away to the people you love, to give to a special cause or something along those lines. 
Yeah. You know, that makes me think about the Rockefellers and how when in the second generation, you know, after the wealth had been created, that the family and John engaged in philanthropy, that that was when the business really took off, was when the giving started. Yeah. Yeah. The 10% tithing kind of thing for them, they sort of applied in the real world and it's absolutely the case that that there's a kind of a dynamic there, and that's that, that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Yeah, but I'm, I, I give so when medical medical students, I, I know I, I don't know if this is exactly proper, but you know the bureaucracy in the state university of New York system is so big for so extensive for reimbursement. You have to wait like months and months and months. So I'm constantly sort of slipping people fifty bucks or eighty bucks to cover costs for art. Uh, art tools for an event they're having and I'm happy to do it. If people want to connect with you or they want to learn more from you, what would you have them do? Well, I have a website which is Stephen with a P-H-G like Gary Post, P-O-S-T dot com and then I have the Institute website which is unlimitedloveinstitute.org but actually People are free to email me. They just email me directly. You know, my email is on the website, post at stephengpost.com. And I will respond. It may take me for a couple of days, but but I do respond. And I get a lot of sometimes almost pastoral type emails. And I, I try to give it an honest response, you know. And what do you mean by that? Pastoral is just kind of long and... Well, just people who, just people who are... No, I mean people who are just struggling with things and... Oh, like a pastor would get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's hard for them to believe anymore that there's such a thing as a cherishing higher presence in the universe or that synchronicity is even possible because they've been so beat up. Yeah. And so I, I you know, I sometimes take a lot of time to respond to those kinds of concerns because they're serious. I don't want to be Pollyannish and, yeah. and, and, you know, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of suffering going on for sure. Yeah. And so much of it self-inflicted not to diminish it, but yeah. <laughs> I speak so from my own, from my first life. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So much of it is self-inflicted. It's unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, how did Seneca put it? The greatest griefs we cause ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So and that by the way was one thing I loved about your book was you included uh you include in God and Love on Route 80 many quotations that I was not familiar with and I'm a collector of quotations <laughs> and I feel like you have some really great ones in here. So thank you for that. Well thanks. Yeah, those are those are really pit stops because there's all these episodes of synchronicity but then this page or two where you get a you know a picture of there's all kinds of pictures in there. Yeah. Even on the Mercedes 190, there's a picture of yeah. me standing in front of it in the driveway. You know, as yeah, a kid, fun. and and the Gahon zones, a picture of a Gahon zone, and the, you know all kinds of things. Then little little you know a few spiritual statements. So that gives it makes it kind of easier to read because you get a break and then you can dig into that stuff. Yeah. Well, what a gift too. I think you've given your family and posterity who might likely not get a chance to meet you in this lifetime. And it's books like this when I I do think, and I asked a publisher once, I said, do you think it's true that everyone has at least one book inside them? And she said, unfortunately, (laughs) but still I, I go around encouraging people to write a book and I, and I've actually now started making a list of books. And I actually, because I do this podcast, I divide books into authors living and deceased Oh, and I prioritize living authors because in many cases, hopefully I still get to talk to them. So I'm really glad that you, that you wrote this and we were able to have this conversation. Thank you very much. I'm glad you 
were engaged by it. Yeah, I was very, very much. I took, I took a lot away. Okay. So the final section, we've left a few minutes and this part in particular, again, is for those who are also engaged in or who want to engage with, maybe they flirt with the idea of writing their own book, translating that from an idea or mere intention into a reality. You know, for my first 30 interviews or so, I had kind of a standard question set here and I pretty much threw it away. So knowing that that's who we're talking to or endeavoring to serve, and that's what the point of the conversation is, where would you like to start? Well, you know, I like, I like to encourage people to write from life. I mean, I, I think people, they, they don't write because, you know, they're not scholars, maybe. Uh, maybe they don't think they have enough education or accomplishment. They're not famous or anything like that. But actually, everybody can write from life. And everybody's life has depth and narrative. And there's some way that you can look at it that will attract readers from every kind of background because there is a story there and and you can tell it. And a lot of the most successful books have been written that way. Just, you know, people really reflecting about even relatively simple experiences they've had in their lives. There was a there was a best-selling book a few years ago about Shaker Heights, Ohio, where we raised our kids. And it's just some somebody grew up in Shaker and they were writing about the details of Shaker Heights and how the garbage people would actually drive these little carts up to the back of the driveway and all that stuff. And it was a really successful book. Wow. So so you know, don't be afraid to, you know, to to write from life and you don't have to rush it. Just kind of, you know, start like I started Route 80 in 2000, just little vignettes because, you know, I'd had some of these experiences and, and then I stopped writing. It was actually part of an electronic newsletter for the Institute. And then about four years ago, I came back to it and I decided, you know, there's enough here to really write a meaningful journey story. And especially after the UN was kind of a crescendo event. So it, it, it had some momentum, but sometimes books are sort of writing themselves over time. So you can let your pen rest, you know, but you're still in the middle of a big writing project because your life flows on. So that means this book, understanding what you said, you took a break and let your pen rest and that kind of thing. But that means this book took you nearly 20 years. Well, kind of, you know, but, but the thing is, you know, I mean, I've, I, I, I had to build this center at Stony Brook and I write I write a lot of articles for medical journals, JAMA, New England Journal, all these kinds of places. And I sort of enjoy that because that's meaningful too. But this was a special book because it was the spiritual side of my life. And, you know, I, I sometimes it's helpful. I, you know, I've had some accomplishment over the years. I've been very fortunate and blessed. But I wanted to, I wanted to reveal sort of the inner dynamic of that, which really comes from this dream experience and the course of my life and trying to stay on Route 80. And so I'm happy I wrote it. I really am happy. I smile about it and yeah. uh, I feel comfortable. Yeah. And you know, that really just affirms my belief that we all want to have run a marathon, but we don't want to run a marathon. Like it's, it's, easy, it's great to smile when it's done, but yeah. in many cases, the creative process is agony. <laughs> I think, I don't know if that's your experience, yeah. but that's certainly mine that maybe our writing, the quality of it improves. But yeah. the act of it never seems to get any less painful. 
or easily. Although when we hit the flow state, then it's like, boom, then it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how it is from, from when I'm doing well, you know, that's how I feel. I mean, every day, you know, I have like 200 emails and so I'm so fragmented and I can't, I'm just quickly responding to these emails left and right, left and right. You know, if I go up to the Poconos and I, I could for I could do 24 seven for a week and just write a, you know, a single reflective essay and I would feel completely energized because it's focused and it's meaningful. Yeah. So that's the thing is, you know, you want to be in that kind of a flow state. And this book got better. The writing of it got better. It, it, it I, you know, in the, in the end, I was trying to write it as a kind of spirit, almost like a spiritual classic in a way. And, and I, I wanted to create that kind of tone in the way I was using language and turning phrases and things like that. Yeah. And I think that comes through. In fact, that brings to mind a question I did want to ask, and I wonder if it might have, like if it might open up anything for someone listening, but you made the decision to write this book largely in third person. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's all third person. Tell me about that. But Why when did I you do just, that? Yeah, so I was at St. Paul's and I ran cross country and we had a cross country coach named Senor Ordonez. And this guy, he was Cuban, by the way, originally, and he'd come to St. Paul's and he was a history teacher and he smoked non-filter players, cigarettes. So he'd be running through the woods, you know, with a group of, you know, 15 or 20 people like myself. And, and there was this place called Turkey Hill, up the hill, and he would just stay down at the base, chain smoking this stuff, you know. <laughs> and well, he wasn't a great example. But he called everybody the boy something, like the boy Smith, the boy Jones, the boy Robertson. And my brother had gone there before me. So he was already the boy post. So I became known as the boy, you know, and because, you know, there couldn't be two boy posts. So I was just the boy and, and people kind of started referring to me as the boy. And, and so that's how I got into that. But I also found it really enjoyable because when I wrote that way and sort of, a, a, you know, acculturated to that in, in, in Route 80, it just kept me free of having to write about me, myself, and I. Yeah. And it also gave me a little bit of a distance on it. So I was kind of, I was kind of entertained by all oh, the boys doing, you know, and also it wasn't it, it, with the boy. It wasn't so much just a book about, you know, me, Stephen G post, you know, my memoir, but it was just about the boy and anybody could be the boy in, yeah. in a way, you know, so invite, it invites anybody to sort of get in touch with that child within, if you will. And so I really liked writing it that way. Some people, you know, I know it's a little bit off-putting for them and they have to get used to it, but most people, they kind of get into it, you know, they kind of yeah. like it. Yeah. It definitely contributed for me to the narrative quality of the, of yeah. the writing. Yeah. And that to me is just an example. I mean, as a writer, there are so many considerations to make, you know, from word choice to active and passive voice and, you know, show don't <clears> tell and like all these different things. And this is one that if somebody's, you know, feeling stuck somehow, I wonder if, because it had never really occurred to me to try this in a piece of nonfiction mm -hmm. to write it autobiographically in the third person, yeah. but that's kind of an interesting choice. So maybe that will also open up something for somebody listening. Yeah. It worked pretty well for me. Yeah. You know? That's great. And it worked well for me as a reader. Thank so, you. Good. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Let me ask you this in your, well, I'll ask you this way. What are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? Boy, that's a really hard question. To me, a great sentence 
is pretty simple. I don't use a lot of colons and semicolons. You know, I like I like to break up sentences. I like them to be very easily managed. I like a turn of phrase, you know, that is memorable. And and I like them to have a sort of melodic quality. How do you know when they do? Well, it's kind of like playing a piece of music uh, for me. It's like phrasing a piece of music. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you want to have the a good piece of music has fast and slow and high and low and sound and no sound and all those kinds of things. And so a really good sentence is not complicated, but it has that kind of musicality to it. And that's what I, I aspire to, but it's not, it's not easy. And it's for a certain, I'm always doing more technical writing, you know, for a journal, I wouldn't worry too much about that, but I tend to try to write, musically because i i feel as though if that quality is there it's going to be much easier on my reader yeah enjoy I, I, I think so i really appreciate that answer so i think the final question well i i am interested also i do want to just turn to at least one question about marketing and promotion maybe pitching a book you know this kind of thing because i think as writers it's easy for us to see the completion of the manuscript as the finish line mm-hmm. But I think also when we think of ourselves as writers, most of us are not truly satisfied if all we do is complete something, but no one ever reads it or benefits from it. Oh, yeah. I want to just ask that question and then I'll ask my final question about the writing, the act of writing again. But what have you learned about marketing and promoting a book, actually getting it into people's hands that has like made a difference for you or or might make a difference for people listening? Well, you have to be willing to put some resources into it, you know, find a good publicist. Some of them are better than others. How do you know when you've got a good one or which ones to avoid? You know, you, you have to experiment a little bit and it's not easy. I mean, Eileen Dunny, who I work with, just knows so many great people. I'm astonished at the quality of interviews that she pulls together. People like yourself, frankly, you know, but well, thank you. But others, I mean, people really have a commitment to this and and a vision and you have that obviously and it's been evident since we first encountered one another two hours ago but you you know it's okay you want to have a, a, a good age and you don't have to put yourself in hot but you know that's worth doing and the other thing is be generous with your book if you if you really feel comfortable and confident in it don't be afraid to give it away that's okay it can it can allow people to get excited by it and then they'll they'll buy copies for five friends at Thanksgiving or something like that. Yeah. So so this book I mean I you know why good things happen was is I think that sold about 70,000 copies it was pretty successful. You know this one's catching on it's a different kind of it's a completely different genre because it's not you know this is really a spiritual journey book and I'm so glad to have written it and I didn't write it necessarily to be you know, a number one bestseller. I wrote it because I wanted to allow people to transform their lives. That's why I wrote it, you know, and, and nice thing. I was looking at the, it's like 25 reviews on Amazon now, but almost everyone says the same thing. You know, this was transformative and that's really all I care about. And, and I, and it didn't, I didn't have to get technical because Larry Dossie was kind enough to write the forward so he filled in all the stuff about one mind and premonition, oh, yeah. you know. That's awesome. And Chopra blurbing, and Chopra, that never hurts. 
Yeah. <laughs> Deepak Chopra on the cover there too. Yeah. So they were really generous and I guess they just, they just liked that, like the book. They liked the, the dream a lot. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. You know, we forget and we can remember, we, we can remember, we can remember. What is it that is important for people to remember when they're in the belly of the snake, so to speak, when they're in the tunnel, when they're birthing the book, what is it that's important for them to remember? If there's a simple, if there's an idea, a saying, you know, a piece of encouragement, something like that. What do you leave people with when it comes to completing the book? We rise by lifting others. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I, that's how I am anyway. I mean, I, I always write because there's some constituency you know, I've written a lot of things about the deeply forgetful about Alzheimer's folks for caregivers. There's some constituency that I'm writing for and I can see them. I can even have pictures of them in my mind, including Route 80. Route 80 is for all these wonderful folks who are just so caught up in modern materialism that they, they can't see a way out of it. So I wrote it with the heart of service. So I think you want to you know who you're benefiting and you want to you want to write in a way that's somewhat unique. You know, you want to you, you want to be innovative, and you want to be true to yourself. But don't just write. I I don't. Other people may be different. I don't write just to write. I mean, I write because there's something I want to bring for others. Yeah, that's evident. That's great. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for sharing of your time and your experience and your wisdom with me and with everyone who's listening. I'm really, really grateful. Well, you've, you've been fantastic, Brian. I thank, I can't thank you enough for being who you are. You know, being being close to the Great Salt Lake Route 80. That I, I, I was, when I, I think we were talking before when I was coming across the country on Route 80 when I was a young kid. I was like gaga at the Great Lake. I thought, oh my God, there's the Great Salt Lake. You know, yeah, and, and a little further than, than the Salt Flats. Yeah, 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 yeah. I could look over it, and you know, so. That was my that was one of my exciting moments on Route 80. Yeah, that's beautiful. And the, and the final thing here that I'll just share as an expression of my gratitude to you, I've gone on Kiva.org and I've made a $100 microloan to an entrepreneur in India, to a woman who will use this, this money to buy apples and mangoes and expand her fruit shop and in, in improve the quality of life for herself and for her family and ultimately for her community. Great. So, that's beautiful. Yeah, someone named... Farjanabu Banu. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Well, thank you for having me and I wish you well and blessings. You know, you got, I'm sure you have a very inspired audience. So well, I think I do now if I didn't before. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, thank Take you. care. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me 
and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.